Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Van Borst, and I have the privilege to be a pastor here at Antioch. And this morning, I am honored to conclude part four of our series on John the Baptist. On week one, Pastor Nathan, he helped us become familiar with this quirky character named John. And then for the past two weeks, Pastor Pete explored two intriguing parts of John's life. Now, you might be wondering, why have we chosen to do a series about John leading up to Christmas? And here's the thing. You see, John plays a super important part in the story of Jesus. In fact, he is the personification of Advent in that his job was to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. And this Advent series invites us into a season of waiting and of preparation for the arrival of Jesus through the perspective of John. This morning, we're going to spend our time in Luke 1, Luke is the author of this letter, and he was a trained historian and a physician who took great pains to compile the most thorough and the most accurate account of this man named Jesus' life. He was not an eyewitness of Jesus, but after much investigation, he became fully convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. He wrote everything out that he had learned so that the most or so that the first reader of this letter a man named Theophilus and then us would have only the most accurate information about Jesus but when we open to the book of Luke surprisingly this story does not begin with the birth narrative of Jesus but first with the story of John and i'm excited to bring you into the story this morning there are three parts to this first chapter of Luke and they all involve a woman named Elizabeth First, we learn about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Then we learn about Elizabeth and Mary. And then third, we learn about Elizabeth and John. And in all three of these parts, there's a unique claim being made. And this is what it is. God had not forgotten his people. This morning, we're going to delve deeper into the story of John so we can better understand what it is that God is telling us. It's this very message that helps us transition from Christmas, I mean, from Advent into Christmas. And with that, I invite you to open your Bible to Luke 1 and join me in prayer. God, you are God and we praise you. You are Lord and we as Antioch, we worship you this morning. Throughout the world, we as the church acclaim your goodness. And we ask that through your spirit, you would help us better understand who you are. Please, Lord, let your Holy Spirit meet us here in this place. Work in our midst. Help us enter into Luke 1 and understand who you are and who we are, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Again, we're in Luke 1. And in Luke 1, it begins in the hills of Jerusalem. Now, in this city, there is one temple. Nowadays, there are temples and churches just about everywhere you go. But back in those days, there was only one, and it was this one temple in Jerusalem. And it is here that we meet Elizabeth. 
In verse five, we learn that Elizabeth is a descendant of Aaron, who you might remember was the first ever temple priest and the brother of Moses. Elizabeth had married a man named Zechariah, and he was a descendant from Abijah, who was a descendant of King David. And Luke gives us all these details to help us understand that this was a power couple. I mean, they were both from priestly lineage, well-versed in the biblical law, avid adherents to God's commands. But in verse seven, we learn a little bit more about this couple. Although they had lived well before God, they were unable to conceive. The dream of children had come and gone. Menopause had begun and ended. And unfortunately in that time, this was a great source of shame and sadness. And while I'm grateful to live in a culture that no longer views infertility as a spiritual condition, or even exclusively as a female condition, my heart aches as I think about the pain Elizabeth had to endure. And as an added note, in those days, infertility was considered a valid reason for divorce. But Elizabeth and Zechariah had made peace with the reality of it being just the two of them and spent their days working hard in the temple in the service of the Lord. Now, twice a year, Zechariah's priestly division would go and serve at the temple for one week. And the decision of who would offer incense was left to God by using lots, which is simply the process of either using sticks or rocks to decide something. And this was how it was decided, who would intercede on behalf of the entire population before God. It is significant that at this very moment, God chose Zechariah to serve him in this holy place. Zechariah did this by standing inside a small room in which there was a golden altar, and as part of their prescribed liturgy, sprinkled incense upon it. And while he was doing this, an angel appeared with a message. Your wife is going to have a baby. But instead of believing Zechariah questions, and in verse 18, we see that Zechariah asks this angel, how can I believe this? How can I know this is true? And then, just in case the angel had forgot, Zechariah reminds the angel that he is old, and so is his wife. Zechariah knew that elderly people do not conceive babies. People of their vintage did not have children. Check out the angel's response in verse 19 of chapter one. The angel says, uh, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. If you ask me, I think Zechariah is pretty lucky that he didn't die that day. <laughs> he got all lippy with an angel. But the angel did take away Zechariah's voice and his ability to speak. Zip those lips, Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah was a priest from a long line of priests. He had been raised on the stories of the Israelites. He knew that God had said things like this before at least four times to his ancestors, specifically to Abraham and Sarah, to Rebecca and Isaac, to Rachel and Jacob, and to Hannah and Elkanah. Despite knowing these stories and working in the temple dedicated to this God, 
Zechariah questioned the angel. Logic got the best of him. He knew God had said things like this before. He just couldn't believe. There was no way. Now, an angel showing up would shock anyone. But in this case, it was particularly shocking because nobody had seen or heard from God in 400 years. It had been 400 years at least since an angel had appeared. 400 years since a miracle. 400 years since a prophet. 400 years is a long time. Did you know that it was 400 years ago when Sir Isaac Newton discovered gravity? Seriously. And it was 400 years ago when William Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. You see, generation after generation had lived without any experiences that would bolster their faith in God as being a God who was with them. This week, while driving around, I heard a country song. Yes, I like country, don't judge. By Brooks and Dunn called God Must Be Busy. And it tells story after story of the heartache of our world. And the refrain is, God must be busy. This song offers an answer to an unspoken question. Where is God? And this song captures the sentiment of these 400 years when God appeared to be absent. Like us, they wondered, where is God? God must be busy, they might have thought. Or maybe it seems that God has forgotten us. Or even, is there a God? Can you relate? I imagine Zechariah stayed in that small little room as long as he possibly could, repeatedly clearing his throat, willing his voice to return, but to no avail. His voice was G-O-N-E, gone. And finally, he mustered up his deepest courage and exited only to be greeted by a group of people. You see, a crowd had gathered, waiting for Zechariah, curious why it had taken him so long. And quickly, they realized that he could not speak. In my mind's eye, he was on those temple steps, playing a game of charades. He's like, five words. Then he holds up his first finger to explain. First word, points furiously at Elizabeth until someone says her name. Then he moves on to the fifth word, holding an imaginary baby in his arms. And the crowd would naturally be confused. This couldn't possibly be what he was saying, right? And then the passage ends, telling us that he went home. And it seems that everyone was confused. But just as the angel said, Elizabeth conceived. We might read this line and move on quickly, but this is an incredible moment. Things like this don't happen often. I doubt any of us know a 60-year-old woman who just had her first child, especially without the help of modern medicine. Elizabeth had become the mother of a miracle, and she followed in the footsteps of the most unlikely women in the Old Testament, whom God used to bring about new life in the most unlikely of ways. The events surrounding this priestly couple must have really caused a stir. You can almost hear the story spreading through that hill country of Judea. 
Have you heard about Zechariah? You know, the priest. He saw an angel in the temple. Anyways, he can't speak now. And his wife, Elizabeth, she says she's going to have a baby. In fact, she has a baby bump. Yes, that Elizabeth. Through this story, God is communicating one vital truth about himself. He was still with his people. He had not left. He had not forgotten. He still cared. But not only was God there, he was doing something new. Since the beginning, God had a plan, and it was still unfolding. But it was happening in a way that no one would ever expect. His plan began by taking away the shame and the disgrace of a lovely lady named Elizabeth. Like Elizabeth, we all have felt the sting of shame and bowed our heads in disgrace. But like Elizabeth, God has also shown us favor, but not to get ahead of ourselves. Three months pass, and the story moves out of Jerusalem up to a town called Nazareth. Nazareth was a small town with about four to 500 people. It was believed, and it's even alluded to in John 1:46, that nothing good came from Nazareth. Luke takes us here because the same angel is about to make a second appearance to a young woman who is probably about 14 or 15 years old named Mary. Check out this piece of art by Henry Tanner. He does a great job capturing the youth in Mary's face. She was young, simply going about her day when this angel appeared. This angel named Gabriel told Mary, you're gonna have a baby and your son will be named Jesus. And in that moment, Mary put two and two together. The things she had spent her childhood learning and memorizing, specifically from the prophet Isaiah, everything that her people had been anticipating was happening to her, a female teenager from Nazareth. And like Zechariah, she questions. She says, uh, okay, how will this happen? Because I'm a virgin. This was a big deal. Mary was not married yet, so this could get her killed. She probably also knew it was going to take a lot of work to convince her family and her neighbors that God was the father of this child. And she must have a sneaky suspicion that her reputation was toast. The angel answered her question in verse 35. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Before leaving, the angel tacked on a little more information to the end of this humdinger of a message. We can find his, Gabriel's words in verse 37. He says, your relative, Elizabeth, is also pregnant in her old age, for nothing is impossible with God. This is a big claim. Scripture tells us numerous times that nothing is impossible with God. Check out a few of these verses. Matthew 19, 26. 26 Jesus said, 
To people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Luke 1.37, the angel said, for nothing is impossible with God. Mark 10.27, Jesus looked at them and said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. Job 42.2, Job said, I know that you can do anything. No one can keep you from doing what you plan to do, God. Jeremiah 32.17, Lord and King, you have reached out your great and powerful arm. You have made the heavens and the earth. Nothing is impossible or too hard for you. And then my favorite, Jeremiah 32, 27. God says, I am the Lord. I am the God of all people. Is anything too hard for me? The Bible is God's story of taking improbable people and doing impossible things. The word impossible would have brought to mind many stories for the first century reader. They would likely think of the very first story. And it is here that we learn that God made the universe out of nothing. He simply spoke and there it was and it was good. This is something that no human can do. The word impossible would have reminded them of the Israelites in captivity and God's amazing rescue, which included parting a sea, raining food from heaven, water coming out of rocks, shoes not wearing out, and being led by a cloud of fire, to name just a few of the seemingly impossible things that God had done. The Israelites had been repeatedly stunned by God's ability to do things people could not do. They would likely also remember the words of Job, who in the midst of much pain and sadness said, God's wisdom is so deep. God's power so immense. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. And God was at it again. Both an old woman and a virgin were pregnant because as we see in Luke's account, with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing is too wonderful for him. Our awareness is being drawn to this. God was doing something, and he was doing something that only he could do. Now, quick tangent. You might have noticed that both Zechariah and Mary questioned the same angel. And when they did, Zechariah had his voice taken away, but the angel answered Mary. And if this confuses you, not to worry, it puzzled me too. And I'd like to suggest that first, the angel's appearance to Zechariah was an answer to years, if not decades, of pleading prayers. He and his wife had begged God for a child, but Mary's vision came unasked for. I also wonder if the angel's response is because Zechariah was a priest who also happened to be much older than Mary, and the angel just expected him to get in line with what he's told. And there's also this subtle wordplay on the word no, K-N-O-W, in these two responses. Zechariah asks how he can know, and Mary asks how will it happen. And each response has a different connotation but the same root verb. I take it to mean that Mary was more open to the mystery of it all. Zechariah wants certainty and gets struck mute, 
whereas Mary is willing to accept that impossible things can happen, although explanations are real nice if you can get them. And while the traditional way to read this story is to assume that the muteness was punishment, I wonder if going mute actually helped Zechariah believe that God was about to do something that didn't seem possible. Was this something that only God could do? Thanks to the angel who not only brought surprising news for Mary, but doubled as an informant about Elizabeth, Mary packed her bag and began her journey to the hills of Judea, which was about 100 miles away on foot. And upon arrival, at the sound of Mary's voice, Elizabeth's growing babe leapt in her womb. But not the typical kind of movement that happens at this stage of pregnancy. It wasn't the average rolling around, the occasional kick, or the toes in the ribs. It was an unexpected and very powerful leap within her womb, a leap for joy. And when Elizabeth's baby leapt in her womb, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed blessing on Mary that ends with these words in verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Or as another translation states, how fortunate you are, Mary, for you believed that what the Lord told you would be fulfilled. In that moment, Elizabeth declared that Mary indeed was pregnant. She praised Mary for believing what God said to her, unlike her mute husband over there in the corner. And it was in that very moment that Elizabeth became the first human to recognize and proclaim Jesus as Lord. In the company of Elizabeth, Mary bursts into a song of praise to God, and we have come to know this as the Magnificat. As I read it to you, you will probably recognize the first few lines. It starts like this. My soul gives glory to the Lord. My spirit delights in God my Savior. Same for the next few lines about Mary being overwhelmed by the goodness of God as he looked upon a humble girl. She says, the mighty one has done great things and his name is holy. But then comes this prophetic utterance. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up people who are not considered important. He has filled with good things those who are hungry. But he has sent away empty those who are rich. Her prayer is a verbal declaration of a God who has not forgotten this terribly broken world. Mary rejoices in God, who is her savior. Mary's life was hard. She lived in an occupied land, a land occupied by an enemy army. Because of this, she had spent her whole life on constant edge because of the threats from these occupiers. Her livelihoods and her freedoms were in constant flux because of the, desire, the desires of Herod the Great, who was known for being incredibly ruthless. And they were heavily taxed, making daily survival very, very difficult. It reminds me of Robin Hood. The royalty taxed and taxed and taxed the people until there was not enough to live on. And they took great joy and found great pleasure 
in their cruelty. But instead of bewailing her bad fortune, she trusted God's promise and she worshiped him. Mary praised God for his character. She tells us that God is mighty and holy, a faithful God full of mercy from generation to generation. This has very practical application for us. Mary shows us what it looks like to trust God's goodness in life's most difficult and confusing moments. She teaches us to take heart and remember the long-standing goodness of the God we worship. She reminds us that God has promised to correct all the injustices in the world and restore all of his creation. She demonstrates how to remember God in the midst of fear, in the middle of panic, and in the thick of the most startling news. And when the days are good, Mary reminds us that in the midst of our celebration, we must remember that there is still work to be done. There are many who are hungry, mistreated, and suffering. And these people are in need of a church that does not passively say God is good, but instead chooses to be active participants in extending God's goodness to everyone as we wait for God to fulfill his promise. I love Mary for her courage. Who else would be willing to throw themselves into the mystery of what God had asked and worship him in the exact same moment? And then we find that the time had come, just as the angel had said, for Elizabeth and Zechariah to welcome their very own miracle baby. After what should have been a very high-risk birth, Elizabeth held that miracle baby close, breathed in his smell and kissed his face because she was experiencing the marvel of a miracle firsthand. And to double her astonishment, the angel had instructed this miracle son to take the vow of a Nazarite. And with these words, Elizabeth knew that this meant he was going to join a long line of prophets like Samson and Samuel who spoke on behalf of God. There was no doubt in her mind that God was up to something. God had not forgotten them. And as she took in the beauty of her son, taking note of all the details of her newborn, a spirit of joy filled her, her home, and her hometown because the Lord had shown great mercy. As the week went on, the story spread. But Zechariah, the priest, he still did not have his voice. Eight days had passed, and the time had come for circumcision. This day was also the day of the traditional Jewish naming ceremony. Everyone assumed that the baby would be named Zechariah after dad. But Elizabeth adamantly said no. She insisted his name would be John. In verse 62, we see that everyone in the room turned to Zechariah and made signs to inquire about his name. Baby, name. Which is pretty funny because scripture makes it pretty clear that he was mute, not deaf. So he motioned for the writing tablet and he wrote four words. His name 
is John. And as quickly as his voice had left, his voice returned. The Bible tells us that the first words he spoke were a blessing to God. And then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He scooped up this baby and held him close and spoke divinely inspired words over his life. He said, and you, my little son, you will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. All because of the tender mercy of our God. With these words, Zechariah explained that John would herald the long-awaited Messiah. God had not forgotten his promise. As my good friend and Antioch's own Jane Johnson explains in her Advent book, it was the tradition of royalty in these biblical times to send out servants before a king left on a journey. They would go before him to level the roads and remove the rocks or the fallen trees and generally make the roads passable. This baby, who had been named John, would fulfill that role for the long-awaited Messiah. He would tell anyone who would listen, get your things in order, turn from your sin, because the long-awaited Messiah is coming to deliver his people. You see, God had not forgotten his creation. He hadn't left. And so that we might believe God was coming to us as a baby to redeem it all. What's his plan to redeem it, you might ask? Well, fancy that, because that is the story of Christmas, when God entered the human story and chose to become a part of it. He became a baby and entrusted his care to an utterly terrified teenager. He was born amongst animals. He was raised in a place where no one expected anything good to come from. And he lived at a time when the promised land was occupied by the enemy. Life was hard and God's people had grown tired of waiting for God. And even in this dire situation, God was at work. It is in these disappointing places where God is. The point of John preparing the way and the angel announcing the coming of Jesus is to give us hope. Hope because our God has not left. Hope because we are not alone. Hope because God is still at work. Hope because no matter how bad the human experience becomes, God is with us. In fact, he's promised to never leave or abandon us. And his plan will not be thwarted. God has assured us that he will continue to journey right alongside of us through all of life. Why would he do this? Because of his utter love and commitment to redeem his creation. And that includes us. He is the one who chose to enter into this world as a man. He has promised to redeem his creation. He has shown us he can through his death and resurrection. And he has promised us he will. He came to give us a taste of his kingdom 
to bolster our faith because the sin and the evil and the disappointment that we experience every single day will not get the last word. All because of the tender mercy of our God. In closing, I want to bring your attention back to the angel's words in Luke 1.28. I remind you, when this angel appeared to Mary, she did not know that Zechariah had seen an angel or that Elizabeth was pregnant. For Mary, she was still experiencing God's silence. After greeting Mary, the first thing the angel says is, the Lord is with you. Hear it with her ears, as someone who had heard great stories of God, but never experienced them. A teenager living in an occupied land. Hear them as someone who felt unimportant and insignificant in the scope of society. The angel said, the Lord is with you. And I got to wondering about this word with. Is it like a short-term with, as in, I was with you then? Or is it more of a permanent with, as in, I'm with you always? And the Greek word here is meta. And check it out. It means remaining companionship. Or to say it another way, it means accompaniment through the midst of it all. By saying this, the angel is reminding Mary that she does not need to be scared because the Lord is with her. He has been with her, he still is with her, and he will continue to be with her. But it's not just good news for Mary because God has given himself this name, Emmanuel. It means God with us because God has promised to be with us too. As John Wesley said, The best of all is God with us. As Zechariah said while prophesying over his newborn son named John in verse 68, he says, give praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. He has come to his people and purchased their freedom. All this will happen because of God's tender mercy. God is tender and caring. His kindness will bring the rising sun to us from heaven. It will shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. It will guide our feet on the path of peace. God has not forgotten his promise to be with us. He has not left. He is with us. He loves us. He is at work in our midst and his promise will not be thwarted. It might not look the way that we imagine it should. In fact, if the story of John and Jesus teach us anything, it might be safe to assume that it won't look the way we want it to. But despite the messiness and despite the brokenness, God chooses to be with us. He has not forgotten us. His presence is not a feeling, it's a fact. As we move to the communion table, I invite you to consider what it means for our very good God, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to be with you. 
fully aware of your life, of all your sin, of your circumstances, of your disabilities and limitations, all your fears, all your hopes, everything. And filled with a relentless, extravagant, never-ending affection for you. This is the marvel of the Christmas season, which we enter into this week. God chose to come to us because of his great mercy and love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your unending mercy, for your unending love. Thank you for reminding us of your character by having Luke 1 penned, by telling us the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and John and Jesus. Continue to have mercy on us and help us to believe that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Son of God, our Emmanuel, a God who has promised to be with us. Jesus, help us believe. This week, continue to be with us and help us to see that you are our God, Emmanuel, a God who is with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.